What are the ultimate evils? When we think about temptation and sin, where do we really actually apply these ideas in the world around us? Today here at Kingdom of the Logos, we're going to be talking about ultimate evils, the psychology behind them, and we're going to be using C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters as the template for this conversation. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there are two others here with me in the studio. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Pastor John Mills. And this is John's first time, I think, being with us here on air. Right. And it is a pleasure to have Pastor John here with us. And I want to throw this out here. We're here to have fun. We're here to have a good time together. And that being said, we're y'all are free to poke fun at me. We're free to have disagreements because we want to actually have some meaningful conversations on stuff. And one of the things that I think we've lost the art of in the modern world is how to actually critically think and debate some topics. Like it's okay to have some different opinions and stuff on that. Mm -hmm. We need to actually show people how you actually work through some of that. So I'm throwing this out there for John. Feel free to come at me with anything or everything. Don't feel like you got to conform. We're just here to have a good time and talk about the screw tape letters which also means we're here to have a bad time because <laughs> whenever I read them, I either feel like I'm going to laugh or cry. Or all the above. <laughs> or all the above. And I think we're all here familiar with the screw tape letters. Mm-hmm. I don't know if John has any opening thoughts he would like to say about C.S. Lewis or the screw tape letters or anything to that avenue. Well, I've always been a big, uh, a big admirer of C.S. Lewis. I thought he had a, he has a unique way of phrasing things, you know, of making things having things make sense. So I've always I've always enjoyed his writings. Well, so I'm glad to be here today. To that point, Pastor John, I think, and C.S. Lewis even says this himself, I believe it's in Out of the Silent Planet. One of his books, he actually has a epilogue where he says, if you want to teach people truth, the fastest way to do it is actually through fiction because people will attach to a story much faster than they would like an academic journal article or some sort of professional document or even a news story that might get circulated around with all of the political speculations therein. You actually want to show people the light. You can do it through fiction in a way that's a little bit more expedient than other avenues. And I think he's actually onto something there. I think that's why I love Paradise Lost. I love Jules Verne. You can learn theology through stories in a lot of ways that you can't necessarily in just a strictly academic book. I don't know if that's sort of something that you've ever thought much about, John, or you kind of appreciate that from C.S. Lewis or anything of that avenue. Well, I, I think you're right about the power of stories, you know, and whether they're fiction or whether they're nonfiction. When we hear something told in a story form, you know, it does. It kind of grabs us. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is that life is now an element. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of stuff makes sense on paper. But when you add the element of life, it kind of falls apart. Amanda, mm-hmm. any thoughts on that before we get started? Yeah, I think, you know, I read an uh, interesting kind of critique of uh, tragedies as a, uh, a genre of books. And often when we read tragedies, we're, our first impulse is to say, well, it's not well written because I can see how they could have avoided the tragedy. And the, the commentator was saying, well, no, actually, that's what makes the book even better. Because we see, like you're saying, we see life in it. And often the mistakes we make and the tragedies we face could have been avoided if they were real tragedies. Uh, other other options could have been made, and yet we make the ones we've made, and now we have to handle them. And so, yeah, I think C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and, and several Christian authors and, and authors in general have tapped into this vein of giving us real life in such a way uh, that 
truth is stranger than fiction and yet fiction tells it best in a, yeah. in a weird <laughs> kind of roundabout way so yeah all right so let's jump into our psychology and really what we're going to be looking at today is some things which c.s lewis writes about in the screw tape letters and i think these are fully true like we really are living in an era where you know nietzsche writes that god is dead and we have killed him this whole idea that there being absolute truth there being absolute morality these things have largely dissolved and disappeared from our society and we've entered into this age where a lot of the tools and techniques that we're going to see here in the screw tape letters are now ruling us and i think simply we can find that uncle screw tape who is a demon in hell he's a fictional demon in hell that c.s lewis has created and Uncle Screwtape writes to his nephew Wormwood on how to better tempt. They're just talking about how they can take advantage of fallen human nature. And we're in an era where there aren't a lot of restraints against fallen human nature. And so a lot of these things really are going on, and we're going to find that. So enough of the precursors. Let's jump to the first quote that I want us to look at. And I've titled this segment, The Temptation of Nothing. Hmm. So we're going to look through some quotes and then I'll let y'all respond to it and then I'll kind of take it in a direction that I'd like us to think about. But again, Uncle Screwtape is writing to his nephew. They're both demons. They're both tempters. And he's giving his nephew advice on how to tempt. So let's just jump into this. It's going to sound a little weird at first, but then it'll all come together. Uncle Screwtape writes, My dear Wormwood, as this condition becomes more fully established, you will be gradually freed from the tiresome burden of providing pleasures as temptations. You will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You no longer need a new good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do just fine. You can make him waste his time, not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing for long periods of time. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return. So that at last he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I have spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. The descriptions describe the enemy, God, as one whom without nothing is strong. And indeed, we know that nothing is a very strong thing. Nothing is strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and it knows not why. So this is the first part of this quote that I've got. This is one of the, this is the longest quote that I've got actually. But what we see here is that as one gets their foot in the door, as the tempters can come in, they don't always have to stay in this point of getting you to focus on something that's like a counterfeit of meaning, that you actually kind of get to this point where you just sell them nothing in return. Hmm. Focus on a dead fire. Do nothing. And that line is one of the creepiest lines, I think, in the screw tape letters. They end up in hell saying, I did neither what I ought nor what I liked. So thoughts on this. You can take this any way you like, <laughs> anywhere you want. 
Um, and I don't know who would like to go first. Generally, Amanda goes first. But, John, since you're here, would you like to dive into this? Well, I thought about that. You know, Lewis predated all of the Internet and the screen time and all of the devices we have. But talking about looking into a cold, dead fire, you know, <laughs> that describes so much screen time that we use today. You know, staring at things we're really not interested in, but we click and we click and we click and we click, and you find hours, you know, wasted away. And just kind of building off that myself, this is a temptation that is actually a new temptation in my life. In the past, I never really cared to be on Facebook or social media, but now I've got to where I kind of like to watch Instagram. They have this new, like, category called Reels where people do stuff with music and, like, dogs and things. And I can waste a lot of time with that. <laughs> and there's, it's not very valuable to me. Like, I know that because you'll, you'll watch it for like three seconds because they're very short. And then you kind of flip past it and your brain never wants to see it again. It, it was a total waste of time. <laughs> and John kind of went there. He came over the top rope. This is kind of literally a cold, dead fire. You've got this little screen. No, mm. nothing going on here. Nothing. Nothing in return. Well, I, I think what's interesting in, in uh, screw or yes, screw tape's letter and, and what he's saying, he when he made his list of what the patient should have been doing, he says, if if I'm remembering correctly, uh, prayer, work, and sleep. And I like that sleep was included in the mm-hmm. necessary list. And yeah. and I think in our our current culture, we are so pushed and moved to to be people who produce things, who do things. Uh, that we need to be reminded that rest is not nothing. Rest is important. And whether that is quiet moments of meditation or just existing and uh, letting our brains kind of reset, or if it's physically going to bed and, and sleeping, these are necessary actions and good actions, and they are not nothing. But the nothing that Screwtape is trying to get Wormwood to tempt his patient into doing, it is, like you guys are saying, it is the nothingness that has no value. It is the stillness that has no value. And so the, um, this is a, an interesting thing with our culture where slothfulness uh, can often be looked at, at is, is easily identified as one of the seven deadly sins, but things like ambition uh, and uh, fervor for, for just production, consumerism, and, and they do seem to circle around one another. And each new generation sometimes has to find which current uh, sin they're, they're facing. Uh, but they often catch both, both of those sins often catch us because they, while we're too busy trying to not be uh, ambitious, we end up being slothful. Or when we're trying not to be slothful, we end up being ambitious. And so, and, and this is the cleverness, I think, that Screwtape is writing. It says, well, you know, you get them with one, and just when they think they've got it, you can hit them with the other. And, and so the, there's watchfulness and all this. But yeah, I, I also like that closing line. I didn't do what I should, nor did I do what I want. And yeah. um, we, we think Satan's going to tempt us always with the, the glamorous and the the sensational. And often the church, especially the church, is tempted more with apathy than it is with outright sins. Sir, and again, I've already referenced John Milton's Paradise Lost, but passivity when god is predicting the fall god's foreknowledge seeing it about to happen he he does nail that passivity is going to be the agent for it and john milton goes on to say that passivity actually has these two sides too like one side of it is is actually serving necessity where like you think that you know i need to focus on what i'm going to eat tomorrow how i'm going to organize my life 
and Adam and Eve in serving in serving necessity, they become passive to God and they forget that God mm. is the master. And then there's the other side of that that's just like abject slothfulness where you, you just are sitting over there doing nothing. <laughs> nothing. And John Milton describes those being as both sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and John, I don't know if you have any final thoughts on this before we get into the second half of my quote here, which is in the same passage. Well, one one thing that stands out to me is, you know, the idea of doing something without really enjoying it and how much of our modern day culture shapes us toward this just mindless consumption. Yeah. It's not that you're consuming things that you're really enjoying or liking, you know, but you're just consuming for the sake of consuming. You're not even really thinking about it. You know, mm. you think of how people overeat and they're not eating things that they're really enjoying their food. You yeah. know, they're just eating and eating or whatever and shopping or, or FaceTime, you know, on the computer, whatever it might be. Well, I want to build off that for a second, because one of the things that I've noticed in our culture is that the adversary wants us to be people of desire while not actually being desirable. And that seems like a weird statement to say, and maybe it's just the preacher's, you know, debauchery of language, (laughs) me failing to speak things clearly. But we have this heightened, we've just elevated a lot of superficial things that are kind of impulsively desirable, but aren't long-term meaningful. Like even things like lust, like we teach kind of people, like our whole culture through movies, through art, through television, kind of teaches people to act in a really lustful and licentious way. But nobody really wants to marry that. Like it might make for some good sensational content, but nobody really wants that long term. Like it's, it's very desirable for about five seconds. And then you're, you're, it's, then it becomes undesirable. Like you actively want it to go away. I mean, that's how stuff like pornography works. Like it's really lustful for a moment and then you, you want it to leave until the next time the urge comes. The adversary, kind of like John says, this ever-increasing desire for more and more things to consume, but then I also kind of hate it. Like I didn't even eat anything I wanted. Hmm. I don't know if y'all wanted to yeah. speak to well, that, but I see that in behaviors and everything in the culture. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes is the idea, and I'm not quoting him, but the idea that God doesn't find our desires too strong but too weak. And that's exactly what you were saying. Yeah. Mm. Let's get into the second half of this because this is, I mean, these lines, they're creepy. They make (laughs) me either want to laugh or cry because this is ruling us right now. And this is where the temptation of nothing really comes in. So let me read this real quick. It says, you will say that all of these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report back spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. And of course, the enemy is God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that the cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. <laughs> I'll just open the floor to that. Well, that's a, that's a, I like the that closing line without signpost, um, without really realizing it, and th- and this is where the the thoughtful person, the careful person, the introspective person will 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 catch these tricks a little bit faster because a lot of our world and this is not a, a modern 
temptation, but one that we've we've been dealing with for a long while, is we, we do go with the flow, uh, follow the mom mentality. And, and there is something to say to step back and to begin to analyze these things because, again, it's into the nothingness. There's not even... You know, at least with the original sin or the the first temptation with the fruit was at least you would have knowledge like God, like that was something desirable to be had. But it does seem as we're we're trying to figure out our way in this world, we're willing to give up things for for really for for nothing. And whether that is because we're we're too too busy or or drowning in kind of the chaos of the world, we, we we don't always see what's coming up ahead. Yeah. John? Well, uh, you know, one of the things this reminds me of is just how casual evil can be. I mean, we have the idea of evil as being something, you know, at least dramatic and horrifying and whatever. And so much of evil in our culture is not those kind of things. It's just just kind of a casual evil that does incredible damage to people. But it's... Well, casual is the word I think of. <laughs> yeah. And building off that, the whole title of this program is Ultimate Evils. And I think there is an ultimate evil in that casual nothingness there, where it's not dramatic. It's just totally under the radar. And, you know, if something has a sign, you, you can see it, you can point to it, you can measure the problem. But so many times things come in. And I think this is what's happened with We're hardwired to be religious. We're going to get to some more of those ideas throughout this book, this idea that we're wired to to serve different things. But whenever people are separated from God, they're going to find some way to work out those natural hardwirings. You know, Mm -hmm. we're supposed to be um, a servant to someone, but then we're also to have dominion over the earth. And when all those things get out of whack, we oftentimes make idols. We become terrible tyrants who dominate one another as opposed to subduing the earth and keeping God's order or something like that. All these things get out of whack. But when the signposts start there, it's easy to just go along and not even recognize it's happening. And there's something so destructive about that. And here's where I want us to go back to the conversation of consumerism. And I want to be very clear on what I'm about to say here. I'm not taking it for consumerism. But an observation I have made is that where consumerism was very prevalent in the past and this idea of going out to buy a lot of items and purchase stuff, we've now degraded into like a deeper level, almost like a cancer, which has different stages. Like stage one of consumerism is want to buy a lot of items. And then like stage two is I don't even want the items anymore. Mm -hmm. Like they were so meaningless to me that I've now got to another point where I'm in something else that's meaningless. And there's this kind of Nietzschean nothingness where just nothing has value. And I kind of think that's where we've degraded to in our culture. And you can definitively look in like the last few generations of American history, especially after World War II, this idea of we have this big boom. We have, you know, you can look at the history of automobiles and see how in the 1950s and 1960s, like every year of car looks different. They're doing major revisions to body work. People are going out there buying a lot of stuff. All these things are coming out. People are buying and buying and buying. And yet now a lot of people when they turn 16 don't even want to get a car. Like there's, there's not even the desire to go out and, and consume in that way, but the psychology is still there. It's just largely gone to like screens and things of that nature. So again, no one interpret this to say I'm taking up for consumerism, <laughs> but I think we've, we've moved to where the nothingness, because we didn't know how to value, we were trying to, to value items and things of that nature. That wasn't fulfilling. Our culture's kind of deteriorated a little bit further 
to where the chaos has just grown. Hmm. And like chaos, it often doesn't have milestones or signposts. But any thoughts on that, on how things have deteriorated from just the lust of objects to now kind of a general just nothingness wandering? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, you know, and I, I think I'm beginning to see also, um, I think we were talking in our, our uh, show prep a little bit, this this pendulum swing of consumerism and kind of nihilism. And there's almost this third option that's coming into play that I'm not quite sure I can articulate yet, that where we've seen maybe one generation, yeah, they try to fill the void, and the other generation's like, well, it's just a void. Let's just, you know, exist in the void. Yeah. That now there's a group of people who are saying, okay, let's try to start assigning value to things. Yeah. And it's not quite consumerism. It's a little bit more hopeful than nihilism, but it, it's it's this lostness of, of trying to find value, but never quite putting our feet on anything solid. Yeah. And and it's like okay, we've seen the sins of our pa- uh, of the past, and we've excluded those options, but we're still just not certain on what's going to fill the void. Yeah. And um, that nothingness. So the the even the the nihilism that killed God, according to Nietzsche, is 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 a, is being killed as well. But but um, we're we're just not finding then what replaces it because. Um, but yeah, there is an interesting. Uh, and these movements are not clean cut, right? So it's not just strictly consumerism sure, and denialism. Right. These these things feed into each other in such a dynamic way that um, they don't. It's not always easy to segment them out. But yeah, I, I have seen that in our culture, and it's interesting to see though how various people are interacting with those things. Right, and kind of looking at the methodology screw tape outlines here, because interestingly enough, everything we've read is on the topic of prayer. Mm-hmm. So. So you start off by getting the man distracted from his prayer life with pleasurable things. You get him to do something fun. But then after a while, you don't even have to do that anymore. Then you can just get him to stare at like a cold, dead fire or go eat an onion or something miserable <laughs> like that, um, which there is a line in the screw tape letters of somebody that goes to hell being a glutton on onions, which is just a terrible thing. If you're going to be a glutton, I mean, onions. Um, but But you have this going on, and then eventually you get to the point where even the spectacular – Wickedness doesn't matter that much to the demons. They're mm. they're fine. If, if you can just get somebody to just waste their life on cards, go for it. The whole goal is anything mm. which separates them from God. That's the goal. And reading through this and comparing this to our modern world, you can see how these different movements have happened. And this is where things get really scary to me because biblically, we know that something always does come and fill that void, mm-hmm. whether it be some some golden calf that people build the beast in Revelation itself, you know, like kind of the big one there towards the end. But you always find something kind of steps in to fill that void a little bit. And that's what really bothers me is something generally steps in the void. Like the consumerism, which is a serious problem, that doesn't that doesn't make people healthy and whole creatures. Like buying a bunch of stuff doesn't make you healthy and whole. Not going to, no. The nihilism, not going to make you healthy and whole. Like none of this stuff makes you healthy and whole. But People are hungry to have that whole field. Any, I don't know if anybody wants to have any response to all that or not. John, it's been a while since you've shared. I'll let you kind of pick up there. Well, I, I don't know how much I can add to what you said, but you know, the idea of consumerism, it, to me, the idea is that you know, stuff. I'm going to have to have stuff to make me happy. Yeah. And to me, you can be very consumer-minded oriented without actually having the stuff yeah i mean you can be very poor and still be a very 
yeah. big consumer, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. because your mindset is that's what I need in order to be happy, in order to be fulfilled, in order, and, you know. So much as I want to go on to the next topic, there we do need to park here for just a second because this is talking about the ultimate evils. One of the things that we also know about evil in our world it really is able to metastasize in a culture once it corrupts the church. We've seen this like historically. Whenever things go awry, for instance, in things that go go wrong in Britain, once the king kind of has that influence over the church, you know, it's a lot of wicked persecutions and things happen. The same thing happened when the church went from being in a force within the Roman world to once the Pope and the emperor kind of got, you know, pretty tight with one another and being on the same coin, then oftentimes they started abusing even their own people for money and things of that nature. A lot of wicked things can come in that. Well, when consumerism affects the church, when that makes it into the pulpit, the place that people are coming legitimately, the place that should be the instrument God has chosen to help people become healthy and whole, when something like consumerism and nihilism plants its flag there, hmm. that then screw tape really has some power. Like some legit power when the nihilism, the consumerism gets there. Do either of y'all have any thoughts you want to share on that? Because I actually think you can explain a lot of our modern kind of the the apostasy we've had as a culture of people walking away from Christ. I actually think you can probably lay a lot of that at the feet of designing churches with a consumeristic mentality. Oh, and and I I think that's something to talk about. Yeah, no, definitely, and and I think what's fascinating about that debate like we talk about kind of seeker sensitive um which i feel like my parents dragged me to a church seminar when i was still like upper elementary so this is a 20 year old debate which was probably more than 20 years old at that point even um but there is this this weird thing that happens with with see with that yeah consumerism. It's like oh we need to make church accessible, and you're like yeah of course church should be accessible. Like did you sleep through the incarnation? Like what? Yes, church should be accessible. That's not the problem. The problem was what we gave up in the in the interaction with the world. And I don't know if Christians have ever held that balance well of being in the world but not of it but also understand yeah you're really in the world like you can't just cloister even cloisters don't even fully cloister themselves all the time they still interact with the world they're still producing right. something and, and 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 i don't know where we fell apart because th- there's just yeah we we don't know how to give to the world and also have this idea of receiving from the world yeah. in a weird way and and the the church has fallen failed to answer the real questions that people have yep. a lot of times in consumerism this is also where we're seeing the a really i think it always was a problem but it's becoming a more significant problem with the prosperity gospel yeah just too many bad things have happened in our world and in the last few years they've happened a little bit more condensed for us to keep saying these these things about well you just have to have enough faith or or God wants what's best for you. And yes, God wants what's best for you. But that best doesn't always like, again, they kind of crucified Jesus. Uh, the best thing was suffering and pain on a cross. So it, there's this weird dynamic that happens even within our gospels, within the life of Christ, the life of the church. 
And like you said, when the churches decided to give up that difficult message and that difficult searching and balancing act for something easy, like whether it is to be a people of power uh, or a people of apathy, which that's <laughs> the church has really fallen into that recently, I think in a weird way where we were the church in power with Rome and, or with uh, uh, with uh, the uh, kind of the popes and and we, we gave that up, and rightfully so, because it was corrupting us. But then, in turn, we just kind of gave everything up. Yeah. Like, we were just like, oh, fine. We'll just fade into the background of culture. We don't need it. And, like, l- let me be very clear. Those churches or, or denominations or even movements of the church are like, we got to get our power back. I'm not, I'm not saying that's a good idea. That's not what I'm saying. I want to be very clear about that. But we've almost, we've overcorrected. Yeah, you've got to have... You've got to be effective in the culture at the same right. time. Right, and you yeah. can't just sit back and be like, oh, we're going to be apolitical. Guess what, people? The yeah. gospel was not apolitical. Yeah. It, it it very clearly had a politics. Now, it wasn't the world's politics, right? but it very, very clearly had a way in which the church was to interact with the world. Yep. And I think there has, to, there has to be a place where the church can exist that is not nationalistic, nor apolitical. Yeah. There, 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 and and I think we are we're struggling hard with finding where that place is. And to that point, we've forgotten we're fallen creatures. We've forgotten how we need to restrain sin. We've forgotten how we need to actually have limits in the world on sin. We've forgotten there's actually responsibilities to have in the world in combating sin. Like when when you take away the fact that we're fallen creatures, that's where you get a lot of this, in my estimation. But kind of back to the point of consumerism, real quick. Mm-hmm. Like you take something like consumeristic Christian music, (laughs) its purpose largely is not actually to give people like a transcendental experience with God. In many times, many times its its purpose is to give people a sensation. And there's no shortage of people, uh, even with groups like Hillsong, who have walked away from the faith, who have been atheist. People have been writing the music. For, for groups like that who've been like, yeah, we've, we've been atheists for like a long time, but there's, this is a pretty good gig. <laughs> and like the, the church has kind of gotten into this and, you know, our, our ability to think critically is diminished. And I think you nailed it. We're not, we were in not answering the critical questions, the serious questions, the mature questions that actually are relevant to people in life. It's just been all replaced with nothingness. And I think a lot of that has to do with being more consumer oriented, you know, than it has been to make people healthy and whole creatures. John, any thoughts on this? I think it's been nailed down here, I guess. All right. <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go along. All right. So many things. <laughs> so we're, no, we're not getting through all this. We're going to have fun, though. <laughs> okay. The next thing I want us to talk to, talk about, is Uncle Screwtape is writing to his dear Wormwood, because Wormwood's patient, Wormwood's man that he's tempting, has become a Christian, and this is a problem. And Uncle Screwtape writes, he says, My dear Wormwood, it remains to consider how we can retrieve this disaster. This disaster where a man became a Christian. He says, The great thing to do is to prevent his doing anything. As long as he does not convert his new faith into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about his new repentance. Let the little brute wallow in it. Let him, if he has any bent in that way, write a book about it. That is often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the enemy plants in a human soul. Just let him do anything but act. What do we think about this? 
This one's a good one to laugh at too. Not not to laugh at it in, in the sense of dismissing it, but because it it hits something pretty pretty well on the head. It zeroes in pretty well, and and this is this is the interesting thing. Oh, I feel like I'm going to disparage the church a little bit. So eh, my resume is up to date. Here we go. I was I was part of a conference and it was talking about some different issues in our world and how to address it. It was an online, you know, because a couple months ago with the COVID and things like that. And so we were doing Teams meeting or whatever. And I started realizing that a lot of the people who were talking, all the people who were talking would say something about, well, we started in Nazarene. I grew up in a Nazarene church. I worked in a Nazarene church. I got my start. None of them were still Nazarene pastors or yep. ministers. And I say this with so much love because I do love the Nazarene church. But I wonder if we ever take time to sit back and see why that happened. Yep. And have we been so busy with our conferences and our books and our readings? And those things are important. We need to read more. We definitely need to read more. That we've forgotten how to act. And so when people are ready to act... They find those actions in other places. Yeah. And they're going in droves to other places. And, j- and recently, someone within the Nazarene denomination wrote a whole article. And I think they blamed the wrong person or the wrong people for why people were leaving. It's not because... I wonder if it's because we're doing more writing than we are acting. And I don't want to pick on our authors, and I don't want to pick on on the people who who the academia, because often I think we do create a false dichotomy between the local church and, and the academy. But I do often wonder in our pontificating if we have missed why people are leaving the church. Well, here, I send you pitchforks to sixty one eighty six <laughs> Eaton's Creek Road. I'm about to pick on academia because all the heresies that really exist in our church originate there. And all the inaction originates there principally. Mm. And I do think you're onto something that we spent more time writing than we have acting. One of the things which is interesting, and I've said this all along, God actually creates man to act. Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve were meant to work with your hands. When you don't act, you forget that bad ideas don't work. Like there's actually, and again, it doesn't have to be out, you know, tilling a yard or something like that or tending a garden or whatever. But whenever you're, you're someone of inaction and you stay strictly in the, the mind, you do forget, you, you forget that bad ideas just aren't, applicable in the real world like you, you just live in elf land to give a gk chesterton <laughs> reference there referencing another book um who would have the same criticism he writes the whole book just to of her- called heretics just to rip on people in academia and I, i'm i i say it from a place of pastoral love where we've got to get past that we've got to actually get back to a place of action and when we talk about the church when you're talking about the church you're not actually talking about the laity you're actually talking about like the higher ups the denominational yeah. leaders yeah. and what we find here is that action is supposed to be sort of the the reciprocation. God has worked a grace in our life. He has planted a seed. Well, we should take that seed and do something with it. Mm-hmm. What Screw Tape is talking about there, where it's like write a book, um, do something that will sterilize that. What he's doing is take the natural growth of that seed, and rather than planting it somewhere where it will bear more fruit, where it will replicate that, take that and misdirect it to somewhere that's basically a dead end. Mm-hmm. There's going to be growth out of a seed that the enemy plants down. The demons in hell know that if God plants a seed, something's going to grow from it. They can't stop that. But what they can do is get that seed to grow in sort of a a perverted direction towards a dead end where nothing will happen from it. 
And I say that as someone who who is an aspiring author over here. Like, I actually love books. I've become the person whose whole life is wrapped up in literature, and my whole life is basically an emulation of many classics of literature. But I'm also honest about where we're at. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that as much as it breaks my heart, I don't want to deceive myself either. I think there's a real problem there, and I think you've, you've nailed that. And I think there was a serious enough problem. There's no accident C.S. Lewis wrote this. C.S. Lewis himself, a man, a, a great student of literature and great, you know, even teacher of literature. I mean, like, this is kind of his forte. Mm-hmm. He himself has wrote many books. <laughs> By the time he writes a screw tape, what is this isn't his first rodeo here. He understands that even amongst himself and his own peers, that that can be a way that the enemy corrupts you. Mm-hmm. John, any thoughts on this, on action well, or inaction? Yeah, I, I think... I think C.S. Lewis is trying to get to the point that we fool ourselves into thinking that talking is action. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking, we're debating, we're doing all of this. And in our minds, we've convinced ourselves that we're really doing something when we actually aren't. Uh, I spent a number of years as a a Christian school teacher in, in high school, a high school teacher. And every year we had in services at the beginning of the year and we sat and we talked and we talked and we talked. And so much of the time we did all of this talking and planning, but it, it never resulted in action. And we were convincing ourselves that we were really doing something because we were spending days talking. But since it never resulted in action, you know, there was nothing that really took place. Mm. And. I definitely get that sensation as a pastor. Sometimes I get frustrated because we have ideas and they don't come to fruition. It's one of the reasons why I've kind of got to the point where if we have a meeting about the matter and we bring up something, put a name and date on it then because mm-hmm. we're way more likely to do it if you do that than if you try to orchestrate it even like to a higher level. For instance, we're going to be watching a movie, God Not God's Not Dead. When I first announced that, we didn't have a date for it, but somebody in the congregation like shouted out like a date, and I was like, write it down. We're, we're <laughs> going to do it yeah. if we do that now. Yeah. But I think John's right that, and he had a very clever statement, that we oftentimes fool ourselves into believing that talking is action. Mm-hmm. And, and that one's definitely true because it feels like you've done something. You get all those emotions out. Um, I do have a curiosity that I might ask John to kind of a little bit off topic if we can. I know here in the church, we often joke about, you know, like there's more pastoring done. Or the most important pastoring on Sunday is not actually what happens during the service hour, but before and after kind of getting to know people. At a Christian school, how much would you say you, you really got to, to see up hand the importance of education, not just during the official school hours, but then also with the life of the kids afterwards? Would you Is that a phenomenon that's also there in the school, that there's a lot of education that goes on beyond the hours as far as the involvement of the Christian school goes? Oh, I, I think so, it's especially when you're talking about, you know, spiritual education and shaping, shaping people spiritually. What, what takes place outside the classroom or outside the chapel service or whatever really is, ends up being a, a lot more important. Uh, when they see you, we were a boarding school, and so they could see you in the dorm, they would see you at meals, they would see you at various places. And yeah, that's true. Well, you get those opportunities to act with one another and to also live with one another and kind of weigh those things out. So there's just a lot of interesting things there. I don't know if you have any wild boarding school stories or adventures you want to tell us. They may not be worth telling. 
<laughs> not really probably but um but yeah i you know the idea of of acting together and we've gotten into this idea that church is about coming in and either talking myself or listening to someone else talk mm-hmm. and that becomes all it is yeah and for the clarification, when I said they may not be worth telling, I don't mean they're bad or boring stories. I'm, I'm saying there might be an element of mischief in them <laughs> that might get people in trouble if we were to say them on air. That That's what I'm meaning specifically. The names have to I, be I don't know if there was a lot of mischief that went on over there. Um, but there was a lot of mischief when I was in school. <laughs> um, okay. So let's go on to talk about humility. So the next thing that we have from Uncle Screwtape is he's writing to Wormwood about humility and virtue. And the next conversation we're going to read is in many ways about self-awareness. And self-awareness is is something that's hard to do. Um, It's not a natural instinct for us. It's something which takes quite a bit of discipline. And let me just read this. So, regarding humility, Uncle Screwtape writes, My dear Wormwood, you must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely, a low opinion. A low opinion of his own talents and character. Some talents, I gather, he really has. Fix in his mind the idea that humility consists in trying to believe those talents to be less valuable than he believes them to be. No doubt, in fact, they actually are less valuable than he really believes them, but that is not the point. The great thing is to make him value them as an opinion for some low quality or any quality other than truth. So this is a mouthful, Mm. but basically... We in the modern church have also forgotten what humility is. Humility is not about having a low opinion of yourself. It's about having a proper opinion of yourself. It's about recognizing that I'm not the master of all creation. I'm not the God who spoke the heavens and the earth. I'm not not even this immaculate idol that I worship myself and ignore God. No, God is the master. I am God's servant, and I have my opportunities to obey and serve him. But then also... I have been given a unique place in creation. Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. They have unique qualities. They have unique abilities. They have talents that God expects them to make good on. They do have certain skills, you know, whether it be to have dominion over the earth and name the animals. God has actually given them real responsibilities, things of value, things of meaning to do. And humility is not so much that we sit around and say, oh, woe is me, I'm a piece of trash, because that would be sinful as well. But it's just to have yourself in that proper opinion that says, this is where I am in the order of things. So there are God above me, the virtues of Christ above me, but then below me are my responsibilities, the things that I take care of, the things that I do. And oftentimes, if you can get humility confused with just a low self-opinion, you will destroy the talents that people actually have, which is what he has here. Hmm. You want him to believe that those talents are less valuable than than he might otherwise think. He's going to have the wrong opinion of them anyway, but as Screwtape says, that's not the point. The point is just to get him to subdue those talents to the point that he does nothing with them and have him believe this is humility. Any thoughts on this? 
Well, I, I think in, in this, you know, you're saying like we do nothing with it. Uh, I was reading a book with my, my mom and my sister recently about it was a commentary on Lamentations and about uh, the book Lamentations and about grieving. And the, the author was proposing that one of the reasons why kind of mainstream American culture is so um, or does such an insufficient job in dealing with the grief of the world is because it hasn't handled its own grief. And when we have a low opinion of ourselves, and this is what psychology will tell us, when we cannot think of ourselves as anything of worthwhile, we cannot see others' values. Yeah. And we see, we project our own inadequacies on everyone else. And so not only, uh, you know, do I hate myself, I hate you, and whatever I have that I could give you to help you, I, I no longer extend because I've devalued all these things. And, and so this is this is the the, the cycle of, uh, of kind of human depravity in this is I sink down and I make sure you know drag you down with me and then now you have a bad opinion of yourself so you're gonna not only hurt but hurt somebody else who then hurts somebody else who then hurts somebody else and it takes something to stand up and say yeah no I may not you know I might not be Moses or King David or Paul or Peter, but I have a responsibility to come and to do something and to extend God's grace and love and mercy. And uh, I may, may never preach to thousands like Billy Sunday or Billy Graham, but that's not who I'm, I'm here to be. I'm here to be me with whatever great or small, big or, or, or tiny uh, resources and talents I have. Yep. And, and there, there's something, and when we get that better opinion of ourselves, what we will find is then we can begin to see the hope and the aspiration and the value in other people. And then we could say, oh, you've got little, I've got little. What if we came together yeah. and helped one another and helped the world around us? And so it, it really, yeah, I, I think... It's something I've also noticed in preparing for this Sunday sermon, we want to dichotomize individuals versus the community or the community versus the individual. And that's never what the church is supposed to be. It's not supposed yeah. to be me versus us or us versus me. It's just how do I exist within us and how right. does the us exist with all the eyes? And so this is, it's, 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 it's more of a flow than it is a, a battle. Right. And once we begin to see that, we can really, again, we see our value and we begin to see others' values as well. Yeah, and to kind of that point, we are an individual that lives within a collective. And you can't love the collective if, or in a real meaningful way if you don't first uniquely value every individual and person in there as being a unique soul that needs to have God in their life. I mean, this is one of the things which is so unique about Jesus. Is he actually comes and cares about the people of Israel on a personal level. Like, I care about you as Matthew. Like, you're not just a tax collector or a sinner. Like, I, I know what's going on in your life. Um, and then that, that fits into the larger category of now, how do you care about one another together? I mean, you can, if you just care about the collective, you can equalize everybody in a mass grave. I mean, there's, there's a lot of evil ways to do that. And if you only care about you know, myself and I don't care about anybody else, well, then you're, there's all sorts of pride, sin, vanity. I mean, there's there's all sorts of, sorts of sins both ways. Um, there's that tension there. What you just said, going back, though, about self-love, this is actually where this goes mm -hmm. on humility. Um, the next line, actually, that I wanted to read is that the enemy wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as glorious and excellent things. But before I read the longer derivative of that, John, do you have any thoughts? 
on this, this, this whole idea that if you can't love yourself or really anywhere you want to take any of this, we've been talking about a lot. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I can see, you know, the idea of, of not understanding what true humility is. And I think as Americans, especially, we almost, we hardly ever get this idea of humility right. We know we're supposed to be humble, but we, we never can actually bring ourselves to it. But, you know, God always values what is real and what is authentic over anything that's fake and that's false. And I think so much of the time, Satan succeeds by, by having us make our, our Christian lives into some kind of something that's fake. You know, something, some, we have to Christianize everything, you know. And that, I think that's what it gets to with this humbleness thing. You know, we have to pretend that we think so low of ourselves, whether we really do or not, you know. And so everything, everything becomes kind of a fake. And, you know, that, that's the real danger I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let me read this next bit. Screwtape writes, The enemy, God, wants to kill their animal self-love as soon as possible. But his long-term policy, I fear, is to resort, restore them to a new kind of self-love, a charity and gratitude of all selves, including their own. When they themselves love themselves as their neighbors, and they love their neighbors as themselves, they will be allowed this love. For we must never forget that what is most repellent and inexplicable trait in our enemy is that he really loves the little hairless bipeds he has created. <laughs> And he always gives back to them with his great right hand what he has taken away with his left. His whole effort, therefore, will be to get the man's mind off the subject of his own value altogether. He would rather the man thought himself a great architect or a great poet than to forget about it. Then that he should spend so much time in pains trying to think about himself as a bad one. So it's kind of an interesting thing there, the way Screwtape frames that. Any quick thoughts on that before we jump to our next topic? I got distracted about the little hairless bipeds. Um, this is a story in ancient Greece where, where all the, the Greek philosophers were getting together and talking about what defines a human being as being a human being. And I think it was Aristotle or Plato says that they are a featherless biped. And so another philosopher being kind of ordinary go, runs out, grabs a chicken, plucks all its feathers out, and then comes running back into the, the debate room saying, behold, a man, while he's holding this poor chicken. Um, and so I don't know if I heard everything else you were saying because I got distracted by that yeah. story, which is just hilarious. But there's there's this sweet sentiment that even hell itself can recognize uh, God loves these poor featherless chickens. <laughs> yeah. Well, kind of the short of it is God doesn't want you to just sit around and be like, oh, I'm just a bad person. And mm-hmm. that be the object of your idea, of your ideas, your thoughts, kind of that ideation in your brain, because then you're just going to rot around and do nothing. You're yeah. back in the trap of nothingness. John, yeah. any thoughts on this? Well, you know, I think one of the big traps we have as Christians is to think that we grow spiritually by focusing on ourselves. Mm. Yeah. And the truth is we grow spiritually by focusing on Christ. And so we have this idea to become Christ-like. I need to pay attention to myself and what am I doing right and what am I doing wrong and how could I do this better and how could I do that better when the whole point is to get our minds off of ourselves and onto Christ. Yeah. You know, you think of athletes, they talk about as they're performing, getting into the zone where you're trying to do your best not to think about what you're doing and what, you know, your actions 
because you want to get into that flow. And I think as Christians, you know, that's kind of what we aim for is to get into that flow of Christ where it doesn't become about me and am I being spiritual enough? Am I doing this enough? Am I doing that? You know, it becomes about Christ and focusing on Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's get a little bit further. We're not going to have time to get into the future. There's right. a whole topic in there where Screwtape wants people to focus on the future um, because it's 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 not defined and you're never really in the future. You always um, exist kind of here, but we're not going to get to that one. <laughs> so let's talk about false spirituality. Mm. So the one of the characters that's never mentioned in the book directly, but one of the people that Nephew Wormwood is trying to tempt, he gets engaged to a girl or something, and Uncle Screwtape writes to him on the matter. He says, My dear Wormwood, through this girl and her disgusting family, the patient is now getting to know more Christians every day, and very intelligent Christians too. For a long time, it will be quite impossible to remove spirituality from his life. Very well then, we must corrupt it. Now, you have doubts, and you've often, excuse me, no doubt you have often practiced transforming yourself into an angel of light as parade ground exercise. Now, it is time for you to do it again in the face of the enemy. The world and the flesh have failed us, but a third power remains, and the success of this third kind is to be the most glorious of all. A spoiled saint, a Pharisee, an inquisitor, or a magician makes better sport in hell than a mere common tyrant or debauchee. And I love that word debauchee. <laughs> we don't have that in modern English anymore. We need to bring it back. Any thoughts on this false spirituality, the urge to get in there and corrupt their religion, mm-hmm. that they desire that? The Pharisee, the inquisitor, the spoiled saint, they love that even more than your run-of-the-mill tyrant. Mm-hmm. I think this is, we, we talked about this at, at Trinity this past Wednesday. We, we just finished up a study in, in the Pentateuch, and it was a very general kind of overview of, of the five books, first five books of the Bible. But um, we were talking about how often when we read the story of Israel and they're grumbling and complaining, we're just like, oh, how can you be so dumb? How can you be so stupid? And we even read our gospel text with the Pharisees and the Jewish people yelling, crucify him. And we're like, oh, how could you all have missed it? And these stories were not given to us so that we could point fingers at our ancestors. These stories were given to us as mirrors that we hold up against ourselves. And we're like, oh, wait, we are acting like the people of Israel complaining. We are acting like the Pharisees in the crowd. And and they are to help us with this uh, self-introspective and also communal introspective and, and worldwide uh, introspection of, of what we're doing. And and I like what uh, Pastor John said earlier, when we look at Christ, if our focus is on ourself and how we can do better, all we'll be is, is Pharisees. But when we look at Christ, what we'll find is then we actually are able to do better. Yeah. And, and so the result um, flows out of that, that right perspective and this false spirituality. And like you were saying earlier, to be human is to be religious. Atheists, agnostics, Buddhists, uh, Muslims, Jew, Jews, Christians, uh, New Age, fill in blank here. We're all religious. And it is worth specifying, atheism is a religion. People form their beliefs. They have their ways they operate. It's religious. Well, and that's the thing. Yeah, we, we, there well, are, oh. 
Okay, excuse me. I, you said atheism is a religion. I heard this morning on the radio, Harvard's new chaplain is an official atheist. So yeah, but and that's what the thing is: is we are all trying to make sense of a world that is so much bigger than us, and that is religion. Religion is saying, you know, I can't explain it. And I don't know how religion even uses science and science uses religion and, and says what does it mean to exist and to be and to love and 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 all these things speak into one another in such a chaotic way and i don't know where i, where I was going with this i'm so sorry i've lost my train of thought well, you, you got worked up really nicely and i'm gonna i don't know how to say, conclude it <laughs> well screw tape knows how to conclude it because c.s lewis wrote this almost 100 years ago and what we find 1940s, so oh, okay. not, not quite 100 years ago, but almost. All right. Better part of it. Uh, an atheist chaplain at Harvard, supposed to be one of the smartest places on earth, and they have an atheist chaplain. Um, just on the face of it, on the face of that, the the juxtaposed nonsense, the like ir- illogical, unreasoning, unborn chaos that that is. Um but that shows you that screw tape is exactly right. The way you corrupt people, go to the biggest university you can find, get their chaplain, and have it be an atheist. Like that, if that isn't something that screw tape would put his stamp of approval on, like nothing is. Oh, I, sorry, I, I regained my train of thought to to jump in. But the the thing is, is as we look in our world and we see that we all are spiritual beings, we all crave something to answer us, to to, yeah. to speak into us. This can either further divide us or it can begin to open our eyes and our ears to see how we can speak into one another and say oh that thing you've been looking for actually it's been right beside you all along and in yeah. the the atheist chaplain at harvard i'm not saying he or she has the answer but there may be that story, that, that, that way that culture is moving, maybe this huge neon light, if only we have eyes to see and ears to hear, that begins the process of us thinking of where actually God is and God is working and who God has called us to be. And there's going to be a fascinating response, I think, in this, that we do not have to, uh, well, hell will corrupt our spiritual desire for wanting the void to be filled. And God has already extended everything that is necessary for us to find fulfilled lives. And it is only living into that that is up to us, is whether or not we're going to live into it or not. And, and I think some very interesting things are happening in our culture. And that's what I was saying like earlier with this, dichot- or this, this interesting interaction between consumerism and nihilism, is we're going to be finding, trying to find value in what we do and who we are and we're going to take a lot of terrible missteps. But See, this is this is where I say, I often say we live in interesting times, but we really live in demonic times. Like, we, <laughs> we are in demonic times. Well, and that's what C.S. Lewis, I mean, he, he uh, or his friend J.R. Tolkien wrote, wrote a comment before World War II, even when Hitler was just on the, the rise in Germany, um, and, and uh J.R. Tolkien gives gives Hitler kind of this very passing, petty little insult and in saying uh, just how much he despises this man and what he's doing. And they saw such phenomenal evil in their day. Yeah. But they could also look around and see that the evil didn't just happen in Berlin, Germany. It was happening just down yeah. the road. And those evils looked differently, but 
as academics, as authors of and uh, professors of literature, they could begin to call people to look and to dive deeper, and that the spirituality of simply, also like Pastor John said earlier, just showing up to church was not going, is not going to be enough to save their culture, their world. Yeah, John, your thoughts on this? I know it. Well, I, you know, I was listening to False this spiritual. idea of, uh, of you know, something. Something can seem so ordinary and yet be so evil. You know, she was talking about, uh, you know, Germany and the Nazis and all of that. And we tend to look at those top Nazis as evil. But for, for every, every one of the important Nazi leaders, you had thousands of common, ordinary German people who were just as evil yeah. and who actually did much more damage, you yeah. know, I mean, the guy who considers himself a strong member of the German church goes to church every Sunday, and yet, you know, his job is to help herd Jews on the cattle cars to haul them off, and he doesn't consider himself evil, hmm. Yeah, he is. Yeah, and this whole idea of false spirituality, of corrupting the church, that that is one of the great stages of the diabolical one. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we've only kind of touched the surface on this. We may do some more examination of the screw tape letters. I had a whole bunch of excerpts. We only got <laughs> through a handful of them. I knew that was going to be the case. But we're kind of right there at our end. We've hit our hour. So we're going to wrap up with some final thoughts here. We do live in demonic times. It, it's really like somebody opened up the screw tape letters and decided this is going to be our template. <laughs> but then again, these evils are as they're ancient. That's mm-hmm. that's why C.S. Lewis is able to write them down. He's tapping into some universal um, truths, which are kind of transcendent. That's really bad. But final thoughts. I have a final thought. I'm going to go first. Okay. John, we often share a final thought, something you've observed in the world, maybe unrelated to the program. Amanda was saying earlier, you know, we're not here to to criticize our ancestors. I'm going to push back on that a little bit and say even Jesus criticizes Balaam, son of Balak there, the Balaam and the talking donkey. I We don't really know exactly the details of his sin because after his incident with the talking donkey there in the book of Numbers, he's kind of right with the people of God, then something clearly happens. That man has been whipped for thousands of years after his death. I don't know the specific details of his sin, but even Jesus is ripping him there in like Revelation 2. <laughs> Um, he's throwing him out there with Jezebel. You know, Peter's out there whipping him. Paul, everybody whips Balaam. I, I don't know. I, I, I hate to see the sin that that man really committed, if you could see it personally, because he's been whipped for all eternity over it. <laughs> he's just put on the whipping block. On, I, I can only imagine for the last thousand years or so, somebody every day, if not every minute, is whipping Balaam <laughs> at, at any given. His torment has never ended. So I'm just throwing that out there for fun. And I feel like I should clarify then, yeah. No, I think we should be very critical and we should hold our ancestors accountable. I've got some very, very choice words for some some of our biblical characters if I get to have them with them in heaven. Um, But Which I was just kind of joking. Yes, no, no, I I get that too. But yes, no, we should be critical. But if our our criticism stops at them and never turns on ourselves, then then we've missed the picture. But yes, no, that got me thinking... I, I never realized, uh, this is something we've also talked about in, at Trinity with when we went over numbers, was we often reduce a lot of our Pentateuch stories or Torah stories to like cute little children's stories, like Noah's Ark and Crossing the Red Sea and Balaam's Donkey. We, we reduce these to just like little little bedtime stories. And 
there's some terrible yeah. and frightening and also awesome things that happen in these stories. And and I, I think uh, once we hit Advent, I, I follow the lectionary from, from Advent to uh, Trinity Sunday, but usually in ordinary time, that second ordinary time, I, I fill it with a different sermon series. And I, I think next summer I'm going to do a sermon series based on children's, the, the Bible stories that we often are told as children that we don't always go back to as adults that we really, really need to. So yeah. uh, well, that's my final thought. <laughs> well, I mean, even even Balaam there is right there next to Korah and his rebellion, you know. Mm, do not die. Hole. <laughs> yeah, do not die. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Don't even wait to be judged. Just straight to Sheol. Mm. Straight. John, do you have any final thoughts? This can be a pastoral epiphany, something that hit your mind, anything? Well, I wish I had more epiphanies, but I don't know if I do or not. But I, you know, in talking about C.S. Lewis and looking at how how we're tempted, you know, Satan uses deception. And the biggest deception is to keep us from being aware of ourselves and to keep us from being aware of God. Amen. And I think, you know, in our society today, if that doesn't describe us, a total lack of awareness of who we are and a total lack of awareness of who God is. Mm. So, Amen. Mm. Well, John, it's been an absolute pleasure having yes. you on live with us. You're, you're always on our channel. Um, on Tuesdays, you come out on our channel, but it, it, you're not here in the, the flesh with us when we have our group together. It's been so fun. With that, we thank you for joining us. God love you and have a blessed day.